We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. And you serve the pig ear. Yes. Talk a little bit about working with that because it, it seems like it can be... Uh, just heavenly if you do it right. Pig ears are my guilty pleasure. Um, they're <laughs> they're so good. They're crispy. They're you know crispy but yet chewy at the same time, um, and lots of flavor. And we actually have a regular that comes in, and he gets four orders for his entree. It's just a big bowl of pig ears, and he eats the whole thing every single time. But they're just, they're, they're just so good that they're like, um, I don't know, like crispy, savory gummy bears, if that makes sense. <laughs> the to a ratio. Okay, though. The to a ratio. Okay, though. That might be the best question I've ever been asked. You're a phenomenal person. I mean, you legendary. I am a fan of you, my brother. Black chefs are artists, scientists, magicians. They deliver amazing food while advancing the rich tradition of African-American cuisine. I've been wanting to do a series of interviews with black chefs on this show, and today we're launching into that. Nina Compton is one of the great chefs in America. She runs Compare Le Pen in New Orleans. She's won a James Beard Award. She got second place on Top Chef, but she's one of the great thinkers of what food is and can be, and one of the people who's helping take black cuisine to another level at her restaurant, Compare Le Pan. It was an honor to talk to Nina Compton about food, so let's get it. It's Nina Compton on Touré Show. You know, I think... New Orleans is the best eating town in America, if not in the world. And yes. every time I go there, it's, I mean, you know, I have to tell you, po' boys and gumbo and jambalaya. <laughs> I learned as a Northeasterner that jambalaya and gumbo are different. I didn't yes, really know that. Yes, very different. I New Orleans at the time. Um, and, um, um, uh, and, hold on. And it's just an extraordinary eating culture. Talk a little bit about what makes New Orleans just such a great town to go out to eat in. The first time I came here, I was I was blown away because it reminds me a lot of the Caribbean, but also a little bit of European. And the feel is nothing like any other city in this country. And it really stands out because it is it feels very tropical. It feels very warm. And the people are even warmer and they're more friendly and they're more fun and they're more, you know, boisterous and having a good time. But I think what really draws people to New Orleans is, is the music, is the food, is the culture. And, you know, you talked about jambalaya and gumbo and they're very respectful of their traditions. And when I moved here, I, I was scared to put gumbo in the menu because, you know, it's such a sacred dish and it's so personal to so many people and I wanted to make sure when I came here, I was very respectful on the tradition of not doing my research and just coming out and doing all these things. But it's, I've never met a single person that I have met 
when I tell them I live in New Orleans, they said, I can't wait to go back. I love New Orleans. And that says so much about this city that people have just a good time. It's more different than any other city. Like a lot of cities have their own vibe. New Orleans is like you've left America and you've gone into a separate country. Yes, yes, exactly. It is, you know, it feels like the Caribbean. Like now we're heading into carnival season and it's every, you know, I I tell people there's too many characters, not enough time because there's just, everybody's dressed up no matter what day of the week it is. And it's just, you can just be yourself and nobody cares. You can just let all your worries go. So what do you love about cooking New Orleans food? I, I love the history of cooking your own food. I think for me, it's just really about the history and understanding, you know, how it came about. And, um, you know, it's something that you talk about gumbo. I've never seen anybody do a deconstructed gumbo because mm. people just don't do that, mm. you know? And it's because it's just, it is so sacred and it is so much history involved in that one dish. When you talk about gumbo, it was made out of necessity. Um, And for me, it's really about understanding where food is right now and where it came from. So for me, it's really about going back in time and doing that history research on how it came here. How did the ochre reach to America? It's because it came from Africa. You know, sweet potatoes, all of these things. You know, it's just really a big history lesson in in, in a bowl of, of, you know, gumbo. Mm. Um, tell me about what it takes to be a great chef. What are the ingredients that go into that? The ingredients going into being a good chef is, and if this is, this comes with time, you know, when I was a young chef, I was, you know, I wanted to make food complicated. I wanted to put 15 things in a dish, um, when you just really need four or five and just make sure that the best ingredients and make them shine and be harmonious. Um, you know, being a good leader, being patient. And I think just really honing your skills each day. I think that's, that's really the recipe for being a good chef. Is the palate, cause you have to have a great palate, right? You have to be able to taste in a really sophisticated way. Is that the element that is God given or can it be taught? I think it can definitely be taught. I think people don't understand that when you're tasting something, what are you tasting for? Are you tasting for the balance of seasoning, the spice, you know, the bitterness? It's just really about touching each uh, part of that tongue and making making those things sing is really about being a good chef. What is What do, what do you hate about being a chef? <laughs> it's a stressful job. You know, it's a, it's a very stressful job. Uh, and sometimes I really feed on the stress and the, you know, the exhilaration of a, a busy night, but it's, it's, it's a very stressful job. And I think that now with people dining out more, what I don't like is when people think that they're a food critic and they can, you know, make, 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 um, you know, just awful comments on, you know, social platforms about restaurants when, you know, we're not perfect. We're trying our best every single day to, you know, to make sure that you're having the best experience. But, you know, sometimes we're not always on and sometimes just a little mistake happens and people are really not forgiving. So you wish people would not run to Twitter or Yelp every time something comes out not perfectly. Immediately. And, you know, it's, we try to make sure that all our staff if they do recognize that they flag that and we try and recover that guest. And it's, you know, we, I think people that choose to be in the restaurant industry, it's passion. They want to be there because they love taking care of people. They love feeding people. They love seeing that reaction when they have that first bite of, you know, piping hot soup. And it it reminds them of a memory that their mom made, you know, when they were growing up as a child, that's what we do it for. We're not doing it because we're slouches. And I think when people are just not forgiving, you know, and we're always, we're always open to criticism and critique, but we can do that at the table. 
you know, when people run behind this computer screen and they immediately start typing away, I just think it's just a little bit cowardly. Mm-hmm. So are you saying that they should be saying it to, to you or to the, to the, to the server? Yeah, I think, it, you know, it's just criticism. So we know if somebody says, you know, I really didn't enjoy the curry goat when they're eating it, you know, we say we offer, can we offer you something else? Immediately so we can make sure that they have the full experience. And, you know, they say maybe it was my taste, but I thought that was a little too spicy. Um, it's all about learning, you know, and what I might think is the perfect dish might not be for everybody. And I can put my ego aside and make sure that they get a dish that makes them happy. When I mean, when folks come into your space, your spaces, you have this name. So they are coming for you, for the Nina Compton experience. Right. So does that mean they're coming sort of knives out, like I want to take her down, or like she knows what she's talking about, so let me... No, it's definitely not knives out. I think people are coming because they've read something about me, they've seen me on television, they've heard about the restaurant. You know, uh, New Orleans is also a, a city where people are sitting at a bar and they're here for a vacation. And they'll ask the bartender, hey, where should I go for, you know, brunch tomorrow? Where can I get, you know, the best po' boy? So it's really about exchanging information and making sure that people, when they come here, they're having the best time in the city. So when people do come out, they are coming for the experience, not not definitely to bring me down. But I just think that, you know, over the years, um, it's just become something that a lot of people just, they take to instead of having that one-on-one conversation with the people that actually run the restaurant. Um, it's an honest critique and uh, we, we can, we can take that very well, but I just feel like it can be done at the end of the night or during their meal. I've, I've worked in restaurants, never, never cooking, but I've seen mm-hmm. the intensity of the, that the kitchen can have during dinner service. And right. like when you get to what, like eight thirty or nine thirty, when like the eight o'clock people come in and like multiple tickets, yes. like that's, pressure you're talking about that like this is the moment i like but i don't like at the same time right when you have more dishes than you can even think about that you have to just knock off right it's a very it's a very stressful job you know when you're telling the cook uh to go ahead and fire you know six curry go two shallotelli you know pork belly or this or that and he's trying to get everything rolling and you know sometimes there that is a room for error you know, if you focus on one dish, you focus on one. But when you're cooking multiple, it's that's a true that's a true gift to have that you can make every single dish consistent. That separates the professionals from people at home. Somebody might be right. yeah. you, but do it night after night. Make it taste the same. Do six dishes at the same time. Do it for four or five hours. Yeah, it's. You know, during the pandemic, we, we, my husband and I were cooking almost every day. And, you know, it's, it was fun for a while, but I'm like, I cook enough professionally. I don't need to cook three meals a day. <laughs> I'm a really bad cook at home. I have a couple dishes that I can crush. Oh, yeah. Which uh, ones? Well, my kids love my pasta bolognese, right? Oh, it's nice. Pony bolognese. And um, I'll, like, cook it for like if they have friends coming over and I'll make it for them. And you know, like when the kids are not talking and they're just eating and they're yeah. like, yes, like, but then sometimes I'll, you know, I'll like add different things. I'm trying to make it creamier or this or that. And the kids are like, you didn't make it exactly the same way as last time. I'm like, well, I'm, <laughs> I'm trying. They're like the worst critics, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. But they're honest critics, right? They are. They are. They're not going to eat it out of out of being polite. Right. We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, 
Let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. One of the people who helped inspire me to want to be in broadcasting is Oprah Winfrey. She's an inspiration for so many of us, but her daytime talk show was so incredible. And it told me that you could be black and authentic and real on TV. And that made me want to do it, too. Black Stories, Black Truths is NPR's new collection that's a celebration of blackness. Each of NPR's black voices are as direct, varied, distinct and nuanced as the black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and how to create world-shifting things out of struggle. Every episode is a living account of what it means to be Black today, told from a unique Black perspective. Black perspectives that haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story, but now they are the story. On NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcasts that center Black voices. Turn on NPR today and hear a range of voices as varied, as nuanced, and as Black as we are. Stories should never be about us without us. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get your podcasts. What can what can the little home chef who's got to make a couple meals for their kids and their family like what can they what do you think are just an average they could do to be better? I I think just cooking simply. Um, so sometimes when I don't want to have a very labor intensive meal. Simple things like roasting a chicken. I roast a chicken. I put my Brussels sprouts, my uh, my carrots, my potatoes underneath the chicken, and I just throw it in the oven, and that becomes the meal. And then I strain off the the drippings. I'll make a little bit of gravy, and maybe you know that would that would be my meal. I try and do kind of like one pot cooking, so it's not it's not too crazy because mm. nobody likes a big pile of dishes. At the end of their meal. No, 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 of course not. (laughs) You know, I never have faith in myself that the journey will end where I want it to end. Like I would follow all that and I'd be like, but is it going right? Have I gone too long? Have I not gone enough? Like. (laughs) It's definitely, that's that's definitely one of the, the questions I think a lot of home cooks have. But I think also just having having fun with it. And, you know, I like when I'm cooking at home, whatever I'm cooking, if, it, if it's a roast chicken that becomes, you know, a chicken salad the next day, I try not to create too many dishes because that fridge gets pretty full very quickly. And before you know it, it's just filled with leftovers and you're throwing half of it away. So I don't like to waste. So I try and use that dish the next day some way. So there's no leftovers because I like to have my fridge clean and organized. You feel pressure being part of the extraordinary lineage of black chefs in this country and what black people have meant to American culinary history. And you stand on top of that, right? You're one of the people bringing that, that whole legacy and tradition forward. Um, is that something that, that you think about as you, as you, as you do your work? I I definitely do. Um, it is a lot of pressure because there aren't that many black chefs that are recognized. It's a very small group. And it's, it's, it's really sad because 
there are so many of us, but a lot of us are not recognized, especially at that top level, because there are some people doing some really special things. And it's, you know, it, it's shocking. And this is not only in America. This is this is also in the Caribbean as well, because, you know, when people talk about the great restaurants in New Orleans, they used to be headed by black chefs, and a lot of them are not. And you see the same thing in the Caribbean as well. Um, a lot of these head positions are held by expats from, you know, the UK or from the States or, um, you know, from Europe. So you see a lot of those things that are, you just don't see those familiar faces of people that look like us. So I think now in the past decade, I would say that you see more black chefs getting recognized and, you know, doing their food and, and, you know, being proud of it. I think that black chefs now have a confidence that they didn't have, because if you look at when I was coming up 20 years ago, nobody was talking about Senegalese food or Nigerian food or Caribbean food or even Southern food. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't recognized. Uh, it was more classical French, Italian. Those were the highest, you know, ranking cuisines. And now you see, like for example, in New Orleans, we have Serene, who's from Senegal, who's cooking a tasting menu of Senegalese food. You'd never see this at that level. So now you find a lot of black chefs having the confidence because the doors are wide open. And you see chefs like J.J. Johnson cooking amazing food. Um, you have Mashana Bailey. So there's so many chefs that are just doing it. They're just doing what they do and what they love. And they're not being apologetic about it. Who else is um, at that level for you who's doing special things that are unapologetically black? I mean, there's so many. Uh, Mashama, you have Eduardo Jordan. You have J.J. Johnson. You have Andre Foles. Um, that's Jamaican, but just doing really amazing food in, in New York. You have Kwame, who has opened up multiple outlets. He's actually doing a Black Food and Wine Festival that happens in Virginia, which is something you never saw before. And you have so many people. You have Naisha Arrington that's cooking amazing food. So we are out there and we are, you know, bonding together and doing our own thing. So when you see, a, you know, a Food and Wine Festival that's it's focused on, you know, black chefs. That's, that's amazing. And that's to show yeah. that we are making that we're making the steps. Yeah. Um, so are you saying that racism is part of why a lot of black, more black chefs aren't getting recognized? I, yeah, I think it is. And I think that, you know, when George Floyd, when that happened in 2020, there was a shift, a huge shift in the industry because people started to recognize, people started to look within and say, hey, uh, my my group of, of employees, we're not diverse. Um, I need to also invest in outreach programs, you know, to help uplift people in the community and do all these things. So there was definitely a shift in 2020 where people said, hey, something's not right here and we need to make the change. So organization like James Beard has definitely made the shift where we're seeing more people being recognized. And I think now that, you know, it, unfortunately, with what happened with George Floyd, it was very unfortunate somebody had to die and be, you know, such a, a powerful moment in, in, in many people's lives for this shift to happen, but it happened. Are you saying that that investors don't want to take a chance on a black chef, that big chefs aren't helping black chefs rise up the ranks enough? That Are you saying that, black, no. that, that white diners are less likely to go where we are? No, I don't, I don't think it's that. I think that it was not a recognized cuisine. You know, when people said, I'm going to go to a Senegalese yeah, restaurant, I think there was just lack of education because all that we have been like brainwashed to, to know is good food is French or Italian. Uh, nobody recognized, you know, Mexican cuisine or Chinese cuisine as being, you know, hot, hot cuisine. 
Um, and you have more restaurants doing things like that. So for a while, if you weren't cooking French fine dining, you were nothing pretty much. And I think that um, we are recognizing that, hey, my food matters. My, my cuisine, it counts, you know, and I think that more chefs are taking um, more pride in what, what they've grown to, you know, they've grown up with. And I think that um, it, it's just really, we have just been, again, we've been told that French cuisine and all of those cuisines are the pinnacle of, you know, fine dining and good food. And also a lot um, of, a lot of, sorry, just, let's finish my last thought. Um, no, please. So a lot of these black chefs that have come up, uh, Eduardo Jordan, Kwame, myself, we, as we're coming up the ranks, we just thought the right path was to work in these fine dining Michelin starred restaurants because that just seemed like the right path. We didn't have Senegalese restaurants. We didn't have, you know, fine dining Caribbean restaurants. We didn't have, you know, fine dining Southern restaurants. We didn't have restaurants like the Gray that Mashama is doing fine dining. We didn't have those institutions that we have now. So I think that the path that the young cooks can take is uh, if they want to, if they're black and they want to learn how to cook black food, black cuisine, Southern cuisines, ethnic food, they can go work at the grave. They can go work at June Baby. They can go work at Compella Pen and understand their roots. Whereas before we didn't have that opportunity. Well, are you saying that for someone to get to your level, you have to be able to do French fine dining to show the industry, I'm a elite level chef, but that's not the best. You're saying that's not really the, the, the best uh, exhibit of, of, of your skill. Well, that was the old path because we didn't have restaurants like the gray. We didn't have restaurants like Tatiana, the Kwame's cooking. We didn't have restaurants like those. And now we do. So if you want to learn techniques within the cuisine that you grew up with, you know, if you want, if you were Senegalese and you want to learn Senegalese fine dining, you go work at the Carnola. You don't need to go to those Michelin French fine dining because you can do it. You can just miss that step and go work in the core of that. But that was okay. That's interesting. We, you, you learn, you learned a lot from Daniel Bullard, who's a major mm -hmm. chef. What'd you learn from him? You know, that, that was a restaurant that was the most consistent. I never saw a plate come back and, you know, a guest said they didn't like it. Um, it was very high pressure because perfection was everything. And that was passed down from him through every single person who worked in that restaurant, that it had to be perfect every single time. So it was immense pressure. And I appreciated that. And I took away a lot of things in terms of organization, um, just everything that I, you know, on a higher level, I took some of that and, and interpreted some of that into my restaurants right now. So, you know, having pride in what you're cooking, being, being more thoughtful about what you do during the day, how you affect, you know, the people that you are around, um, it's, it was a big thing as well. So the drive for perfection that he set, he taught you how to set that standard sky high and how to consistently meet it. Yes. Wow. So, and and was, I, um, I've, I've never met him, but I imagine he's not a screamer. He can be, he can <laughs> be, you know, and, and, and I think a lot of people don't understand that, you know, Chefs don't wake up in the morning and say, you know, today I'm going to yell and scream and I'm going to do all these things. But, you know, people, it's, again, you're in a pressure cooker all day long. From the second that you walk in, you know, as an owner, you walk in the door, you tell everybody good morning. And I go, chef, by the way, you know, the Robocoop is broken or the delivery didn't come in or the fish, the quality was poor. Um, or, you know, somebody called out. And all you're doing is just troubleshooting the entire day. And then you have to run a busy service. Um, and, you know, it's, sometimes it's, it happens. 
you know, it, I, but I don't think chefs wake up in the morning and say, you know what, I'm going to yell and scream and smash a plate. That's, that's the last thing that we want to do. But I mean, there are some days where everybody has a breaking point. No, absolutely. You are under tremendous pressure. And as you're saying, you're just fending off problem after problem all day long. And you're really hearing mostly about complaints about yeah. the, the, the batch that was bad. Nobody's going to come right. talk to <laughs> the meat. That's great. You know, the person who's out, you know, the people who are happy, you know, like walk away quietly, you know, the people right. who are upset about something, they make a big fuss. And, but what, what, what culture do you try to create in the kitchen? Are you finding yourself, sometimes I yell at people because I've reached my breaking point or you like really try to like keep the temperature down even while the standards are high? You know, I, I think that, um, I am very quiet in the kitchen. You know, we play music during prep and I, I, I like to, I, I like to stay laser focused on my tasks. So I find that if I am talking, I get distracted because I want to make sure that I'm, I'm doing, I'm doing things right and efficiently because, you know, I have a lot of things I'm, you know, I am, I'm not a chef that sits at a desk and answers emails all day. I am in the kitchen, you know, I am with my staff but I also have a lot of things I have to do. So for me being in the kitchen, I'm pretty much laser focused, but I like to create an environment where I come into the kitchen during prep time. I'm like, where's the music? Because I think for me, music in the kitchen is, it's really important. It's a really important for my day and it sets the tone and it sets the energy. So sometimes we'll put on, you know, Billy holiday. If it's a Sunday and it's, you know, it's rainy and it's moody you know, or we have like reggae Sundays, so we'll put reggae on and it just makes people feel like they want to come to work. And, you know, it is setting the tone in the beginning of the shift, um, having a very relaxed, but you know, we're here to work as well. But when it comes to the actual service at night, you know, by five thirty, I want the kitchen, you know, clean and buttoned up and everybody's focused. Um, and it's, you know, we all high five at the end of the shift and we say it was a great day or we need to work on these things. But, you know, it's, I've had those days where I, I get really upset and, you know, it's, it's with, with, with reason it's because I'm really upset and, and my staff know that I don't really yell and scream, but when I do, that means we really messed up. So it's, you know, and it's, you know, it, it's an outburst for, you know, a quick second, but then I always have at the end of the night, I, I pull that cook or that staff member on the side and I said, Hey, I was really upset because of X, Y, Z. And I, I, I explain my, my reasoning after that. And, you know, it's not because I'm trying to attack them. I'm just, sometimes I just expect the highest of my staff, you know, and I have to communicate those things. So at the end of the night, we both leave with an understanding of the expectation and why things happen. And then the next day is a new day. Well, why did you name it Compare Le Pen? So when I... Rabbit, right? Yes, yes, yes. So when we were moving to New Orleans, we didn't have a name. And because of the Creole culture and the similarities between St. Lucia, the island I'm from, and Louisiana, I made a list of Creole names and I had typed in Compella Pen, Louisiana, and the same book that I grew up with, Compella Pen, the same imagery, everything was the same book I grew up with. And that was something that we read as a, as a child in school, you had, uh, Anansi, which was the, the spider you mm -hmm. had, um, exactly. You know what I'm talking about? Mm -hmm. But when I saw that book, I said, that's going to be the name of the restaurant. My husband's like, Oh, you're crazy. He's like, people are going to butcher the name and all of these things. And I'm like, no, okay. I'm like, they do, they do. <laughs> um, but you know, it's, it was me bridging the gap between the Caribbean and, and New Orleans. So it just felt very right to me. 
for that to be the name. Bridging the gap. It's interesting. You said you believe, we believe in the complexity of simplicity. And that goes back to what you were saying before about don't, you don't need to put a ton of things on the plate for perfectly chosen things can be better. Yes. It's it's really about, you know, having that harmonious uh, moment where everything is, you know, there's a phrase we use in the Caribbean. It says too many cooks spoil the broth, meaning if you put too much in there, it just makes a mess. Sometimes you just need a little bit, you know, just three or four things and, and they're the best things and, and then it's great. And I think that's where the complexity comes in is having the best the best of the best, you know, on, on that dish and just making it really shine. Are there certain things that you like to cook more? Uh, it depends. You know, I, sometimes I, I just came back from St. Lucia uh, earlier this month and I get really energized of, you know, finding things that I grew up with and bringing that to the restaurant. So right now we have a wild boar pepper pot. It's a dish that is Guyanese, um, but we had a lot of Guyanese teachers when we when we were in school, and they would talk about their cuisines, and that was one of the dishes that really stood out to me. So every time I go home, I, I kind of like, you know, find a dish that you don't really normally see, and I want people to enjoy that. It's like taking them on a trip to the Caribbean, you know, but in my restaurant. What does eating healthy mean to you? Whatever your eating goals, Thrive Market is the best place to get all your groceries and household essentials. And getting Thrive shipped to your door is like having a great supermarket right outside your house. I love that Thrive Market carries brands with the highest quality ingredients and ethical sourcing methods. Whether you're looking for organic kid snacks or low sugar alternatives or gluten-free essentials, Thrive Market's got it and their site lets you curate your shopping experience quickly. And as a Thrive member, I save on every order, usually about 30%, which of course I love. And when you join, you help a family in need with the membership matching program. Join in on the savings with Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order plus a $60 gift for free. Go to thrivemarket.com slash for 30% off your first order plus that free $60 gift. That's Thrive, T-H-R-I-V-E Market dot com slash Toray. Thrivemarket.com slash Toray. On March 16th, 2000, two sheriff's deputies were shot in Atlanta. Jamil Alamine, a Muslim leader and former black power activist, was convicted. But the evidence was shaky, and the whole truth didn't come out during the trial. My name is Mosi Secret, and when I started investigating this case in my hometown, I uncovered a dark truth about America. From Tinderfoot TV, Campside Media, and iHeart Podcasts, Radical is available now. Listen to the new podcast, Radical, for free on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. One of, the, um, one of the meals that I'll never forget, many years ago, my friend got married and his bachelor party was at this, some restaurant in Williamsburg in Brooklyn where, where if you order a head, they make the whole pig head. Oh, oh, nice. And he... I he, he I ate a couple of bites of the ear, mm-hmm. and it was amazing, and it was unlike anything that I ever had. Um, and you serve the pig ear, yes. Talk a little bit about working with that because it it seems like it can be uh, just heavenly if you do it right. Pig ears are my guilty pleasure. Um, they're <laughs> they're so good. They're crispy. They're you know, crispy, but yet chewy at the same time. Um, and lots of flavor. And we actually have a regular that comes in and he gets four orders for his entree. It's just a big bowl of pig ears and he eats the whole thing every single time. But they're just, <laughs> they're, they're, they're just so good that they're like, um, I don't know, like crispy, savory gummy bears, if that makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's just extraordinary. So wait, yes. on your menu, there's a 4% kitchen recognition charge. Yes. What does that, what does that mean? We're so good that you should make sure that you take care of us. No, it's not that it's, 
you know, it's a way we, my husband and I, we were talking about um, how to create, um, you know, to raise wages because during the pandemic, you know, it was, it was really, really hard on a lot of restaurants and, you know, raising wages to, you know, $24, it just, it was just not economical for us. And we, we researched a way because in some restaurants in Europe, there is no tipping. It's all built in with gratuity yeah. and everything else. But here in the States, if a tip has to go to the kitchen, it cannot be a tip. It has to be a service charge. So we incorporated that rules way. Of, the rules of New Orleans. No, no, of, of, of the States. Of, the, of, of America. Right, okay, okay. Exactly. So if you, if you tip somebody, it has to be the person that is actually serving you. It cannot right. go to the kitchen. So if you have a server, say, for example, Jessica, she's your server and you write a tip for, I don't know, $20 on the end of the check, that tip goes to Jessica. So the only way or that we could get... Or, or they can pool the tips, but they have to be pooled among the servers and exactly. the bar staff. They cannot be shared by but the, the kitchen not doing service. Exactly. It, what do you do? You th I, the tipping, the whole tipping system, seems like potentially a way to pass some of the restaurants' costs onto the diners. Is that not right? What, well, it's what's still, going it's, on? It, it still, it still is, ends up on the guest anyway, regardless. Because even if I say, hey, I'm going to raise my, because this is the thing about Tori, is that when people come to a restaurant, they see that I'm going to charge $60 for a curry goat. They're not going to come to the restaurant because they see it's $60. And there's a, a huge dispute that's happening where people are saying, you know, if you want to raise price, if you want to pay your staff more, just raise your prices. But they see the it's 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 kind of a it's a mind thing when people see the prices on a menu, and they see it's seventy eight dollars or sixty dollars, like wow, it's so expensive. But you know, it's it's just really people just don't understand the dynamics of of how a restaurant runs. And I know that Danny Meyer had tried for a very long time to eradicate tipping. Because tipping is, you know, we had talked about it with a lot of restaurateurs here in New Orleans during the pandemic of how do we get rid of tipping? And what if we just do us, you know, where it's just all built in? And, you know, one of, one of the people brought up that said, well, not every restaurant can do that because if you have, you know, a fast casual and they're still getting tips, they can't build it in because perception-wise, I'm paying eight or nine dollars for a poor boy, and then now it's eighteen because you're building everything in. It's not because it's not perceived as affordable or, or fast casual, right? Because that's what it breaks down to. It's some concepts it just doesn't translate. But we, you and I, and I'm just paying devil's advocate here. Yeah. I am. I worked in restaurants. I will always give twenty percent. Um, without question. Um, but you and I have eaten in Europe. Right. The prices are not insane, right? Uh, you know, there's there's restaurants of all different. And um, I mean, I just happened to be talking about this with my son yesterday because we went mm -hmm. somewhere where we went to a restaurant that sometimes we sit in, but this time we took out. And he was like, why did you tip them 15%? They didn't do anything. And I'm like, basically, I would feel guilty if I didn't. Right. And he's like, well... He, then he goes, he's 15. So then he goes into like, you know, so if you buy something that's $10 and they bring it to you, you give them $2. If you buy something that's $50 and they bring it to you, they did the same thing. It cost the waiter the same thing to bring you a steak or to bring you French fries. But right. like, you know, but then you paid him four, five times what you paid her to bring you just a plate of French fries. And he's like, how does that make sense? And I'm like, I don't know. Right, right. <laughs> paid well, an entirely different amount for the same action from right, the server. Right. I don't know what the difference is. The difference is socially constructed. So what? But you, you, your whole business is is predicated on that, and you have a server right. going out trying to get me to buy more and more and more. So I'll right. give her more. So how do you defend that? But 
I, I, I think in all honesty is that tipping, it, it's hard because we have tried so many different ways. But in this country, because, you know, if I go to London and I leave a tip, it's just like they, they're like surprised. And, you know, when the Europeans They'll come back to you, they, right. they chase me down the street in England. They're like, this is yours. Right. So when the Europeans come over here, they're always considered terrible tippers because culturally, it's not in their culture. They, if it's 15, 15 euro, it's 15 euro. And I, if I give a 20, I get my change back. Um, it's just not, it's not culturally. It's just not what they do. But in America, we have been culturally, you know, that's what we expect is that if I ring in a coffee, I expect a dollar tip. It's we expect it. And I think that we need to find a way to eradicate that and just build everything in. But we have tried to find creative ways to just get rid of it. But I just think some people want to go back to tipping. And that's what happened with Danny Meyer when he tried that. There was a lot of pushback because people were like, the server's like, I want to get my tips. And the guest is like, well, I want to leave a tip. So it's just, I don't think we can ever go back to getting rid of tips because culturally it's what we expect. But I don't think, tip, I'm not a fan of it. I, it's, it's a very gray area and it's, you know, it's, there's so many things that have been documented where it is, it is unfair the way that the system is built on tips because yeah. that server is expecting that tip you know, to pay their bills or do this. It's like they thrive on tips, which is not the best way to live because there's no other industry that does that. Well, I have, I have one employer. We decided on my compensation, you know, and, and that's what I get. If I had to depend on every single person I encounter to determine how much I'm going to get, that would be very chaotic. And right. You know, you may be a very nice person, but you just left me a dollar short on your math or whatever. Like, <laughs> you know, the you know it's, it's, good, good. It's, it, it, it is a it is a tricky thing because, like you said, you're expecting that tip. When when I went to culinary school, we had a class that um, you're you're training in the front of the house, and I remember this was my first you know serving thing. I was maybe nineteen or twenty, and the restaurant is open to the public. So we had this the young couple that came in and um, they were, we were having a great time. We were cracking jokes. We were talking about everything. They really enjoyed the food. And they said, okay, uh, we're, we're done for the evening. So I go ring up that check and I come out and they're gone. <laughs> they completely ghosted me. And I tell my friend, I'm like, hey, these people on table 21, they left. They didn't, they just left. And, you know, it's just, here I am, here I am expecting, I'm like, these people are going to leave me the biggest tip because we're, we're friends, we're having a great time. And it's, you know, it's sad because it is, it is transactional and you do form a bond with that person for a short period of time. And yeah. there is a de de development of trust. And then you know, you're left with your hands empty. <laughs> Our, uh, I, I ask you this because every couple of years, just for fun, I go on Twitter mm -hmm. and I say, guys, you got to tip 20% no matter what. And, you know, most of my followers are black. And inevitably, there's like a two to three day argument about what with some people saying, no, you don't have to. What right. if the servers are bad? What if this? What if that? Blah, 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 blah. And um, do you? So I know that there is there is some within our community. There is some some resistance to tipping. Yes. In your experience as a restaurateur, are black people worse tippers than other races? I I don't think so. I think that that is that is a stereotype. Because there okay. are some people that, you know, it's, I don't know, there's some people that, that dine out and, you know, if, if the server forgets, if, if their glass of wine takes a minute too long, they're taking half of that tip off. You know, they're, they're keeping tally. So I, I don't think, I don't think it's, 
It's some that's odd no ways. way to eat. That's no way to eat to be like taking the judging the server as the like like just relax, enjoy yourself. I, 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 exactly, exactly. But there are some people that that's the way that they think, and it, it's very unfortunate. But I I I don't think it's a I don't think it's a race thing. I just think there are just some people that. Again, there's some people that don't dine out a lot, so their expectation is higher because they don't dine out a lot. There's some people that they've saved up a lot of money to come out because you know they just got paid and they want to treat themselves. So their expectation is higher because this is a big deal for them to come out to eat. So it all varies on there's just so many different variables. You know, it could be um they're having a fight at the table. You know, that happens. You know, husband and wife get into an argument and then she wants to leave and he wants to stay. And then, you know, the mood sours and then they're not focusing on the tip. They're focusing on what's happening between them. So there's a lot of different things that happen in restaurants, different dynamics that affect the tip. I mean, there's this, when the one thing that people keep saying to me when I say you got to tip 20%, is there basically like, what if I get bad service? Right. And I'm like, look, in 25 years of going to restaurants, I struggle to recall times when I got bad service, right? right. Like 99% of the time or more, the servers are on top of it. They're doing their thing. You know, they understand I'm the tip is everything. And I right. chose to do the job. They may or may not love it, but they chose to do it and they're showing up going as hard as they can. I, I'm, I really struggle to think about times I went to restaurants and was like, the server ruined it for me. Right. right. I even remember right. once we went to dinner in, in New Mexico at this nice place with my wife and my kids and the server came over and she exhaled and she looked like she was about to burst into tears. And oh, no. she, she ran off. She said, I, she may or may not have said, excuse me, but she ran off. We were like, that was weird. And then like a couple minutes later, she came back like brand new, didn't excuse her. <laughs> they just like, uh, you know, I'm, I'm Jessica. Like I'll take care of you. Like what, you know, let, let, let's get caught, whatever, you know? And it's right. like, you took the time to like compose yourself. You didn't, they didn't you know, and then let, I, I just, you know, I know these people work hard. This, this, this myth of like, you know, don't, you know, what if I get bad service? I think if you don't get, if you don't feel like you were getting good service, you should either speak to the server or the manager right. and say, we didn't appreciate this or this. Right. But you shouldn't be docking somebody's tip for these sort of things. I agree. I agree because, you know, again, there's some people that come into restaurants and they will eat half of a dish and, you know, the server will say, Hey, did you do you not enjoy the dish? And that's them just trying to recover the guests and make sure that they are getting the full experience. And then they'll go online and say, Oh, you know, I had this dish and it was, it was terrible, but they didn't tell the server. They didn't tell a manager. And I think if you do that at the moment in the restaurant and you say, Hey, I'm not enjoying this drink or the server's, you know, terrible. What will we do? Then we give you a different server so you can have a better experience. There's ways to fix it. But if you don't say anything, we can never improve or be aware of what's going on. You, you keep talking about recover. Are you, you saying that you're really actively trying to make sure that people come at least twice to your restaurant, right? We want to we make sure that people, if, if they're expressing dissatisfaction at that moment we're trying our best at that moment to make sure we get them back on track and we've turned a lot of guests around where we can read their energy where they look a little uncomfortable they look a little upset or they might make a small comment so we try and win them back before they leave that night and sometimes you can't always win everybody back but we can at least try because i think if some people are having a terrible time in a restaurant and they're not being listened to or paid attention, they're even more upset. Mm. But all we can do is at least try. And if we don't win them back, at least we tried. Because I think being dismissive is the worst thing that you can do. 
Are you making a lot of money running this restaurant? People think you're making a lot of money. And, you know, I look, I look, I look at the sales and I look at everything, you know, the breakdown. It's a lot of work. It is a lot of work. It is a lot of stress. And, you know, like for the example, the curried goat, the process for the two main ingredients, the sweet potato gnocchi and to, and the actual goat to braise the goat, to cook the goat from start to finish is three to three and a half days. To make the gnocchi is almost two days start to finish. And I don't think people understand, I guess it's, it's a labor of love. And when I do the breakdown of the amount of hours I put in, it's not a lot of money. <laughs> you know, I, I think people think that restaurants, because we're busy and we're packed every night, that we're making a lot of money. Sometimes we're not because we're not big chain restaurants. We're independent restaurants. And, you know, it's it's a lot. You, Running a, you have two, right? I have two, but they're not big restaurants. How many, you know? how many, how many, how many seats and do you have? So both restaurants are 70 seats. So, you know, depending on the night, ideally if I can get, you know, two or three tunes, it's really about tuning, you know, getting as many yeah. people in, you know, we're not a tasting menu where we can charge three twenty-five ahead and then people can linger for, three hours and have a table for the night, you know, it's just really about, it's about volume. You know, we're not, you're not, we're not 200 seats. We're not a Morton steakhouse. That's, that's a huge restaurant. Um, and then also there's a lot of things have gone up in the past three, four years, you know, labor costs. Go ahead. If you turn, if you turn twice, you turn the table twice, right. Mm-hmm. Which is reasonable, right? Yes right? To get three parties at one table in a night. Right. So you're talking about you're serving over 400 people between the two places every night. Ideally, that's if every night is hits the mark and sometimes it doesn't, you know, and I, I think when people, you have to be consistently busy and there are some months, especially in the summertime, when there's three months when there's no tourists, there's no conventions. And, you know, it, it's things even out where we're not losing money, but we're not rolling in a ton of cash because there are some months where it is very slow. And you, are you, do you, are you booked for tonight? Tonight's pretty, one of the restaurants is closed. We close Monday, Tuesday and the other restaurant, it's pretty quiet, okay. but the weekend it ramps up because it is Mardi Gras this weekend. So it is, but you know, it, it really, things do even out, but you know, on the slower months, you got to make sure you're not, you know, losing money, but the busy months compensate for that. So it, it evens out, but it, it, it is, you know, a lot of people, um, fail at restaurants because they mismanage the money. They're not focusing on, you know, they don't look at the invoices, how much food costs. Um, they're not looking at, you know, is are the cooks staying an extra three hours past their you know end of the shift? So it's just really about you know looking at all your things and making sure they line up. Mm, yeah, I know in New York, to last the, three years seems to be the the point, the breaking yeah. point uh, that most restaurants don't last three years, and if you oh. do, then you can last ten or fifteen. Well, I mean, I think a lot of restaurants, you know, when people, when people open restaurants, it's because they want to. And I think for some people um, that go into it, it's also an ego thing too. There's a lot of people that hold on way past the, the prime, you know, they're holding on. I have friends that say, my restaurant is really struggling, you know, like we're in the red every month. And I'm like, just close the restaurant. They're like, oh, we can we and I said, cut the bleed, you know, and there's just some people that, you know, they're just holding on because it's an ego thing. Nobody wants to, to see their restaurant fail, their business fail, and they hold on to it longer than they really should. And they're just digging themselves into debt. And I know that landlords are ruthless with, 
not giving any rent breaks. You know, I know in the pandemic, especially in New York, people were still charging full price for rent when there was nobody in Manhattan. Mm. But you guys, are you guys in the black for the year? In the black. Yeah, we are. Thankfully. Well, of course, thankfully. <laughs> of course, thankfully. 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 But you know that, but don't get me wrong. I mean, it's not, it's not all, you know, it's not all glorious because there are some, there are some months. I mean, January was terrible for us. The beginning of January, right after New Year's, the first two weeks was empty. I mean, it was, um, and my husband's like, Nina, don't worry. It happens every time after New Year's, it's quiet for the first two weeks. But when you see those numbers really dwindle after having, you know, a great Christmas and New Year's Eve, and then it's crickets. It is stressful because you're like, how, how are we going to make payroll? How are we going to do this? How do we order food? How do we schedule? Um, it, it is very stressful in those moments because when it's busy, things fall into place. And I tell people, busy fixes everything. When it's slow, it's a big chess game. But you have to spend a lot of money in anticipation of getting it back. So there is a float period when you've purchased the food and you start to pay the staff and what have you. And then later the guests come in and pay for right. it. Right. So there's, there's a middle period where you're like, okay, I've paid, right. I've paid right. it all well, out. Now bring it back. There's a lot of that. And also what, what people don't understand, you know, just to build uh, a restaurant, it's not cheap. You know, because right. you have to get the hoods. The hoods are very expensive. The equipment, everything else. So going into it, it's you putting a lot of money up front. Yeah, that's what makes it hard to get to three years, right? That there's all yes. the beginning costs that have to be laid out with when nobody's nobody's going to be sitting in here for three to six months. But we still got to right. buy all this stuff to be able to take care of them when they finally get here. Right. If you can get through that, then, you know, in your fourth year, we don't have the overhead. So now we can start to ascend maybe. Right. And that's, that's but what it is. Cause you are really hoping and praying that opening night for the next three months, you're jammed. You know, that's, that's the hope. But you're not just competing with yourself. You're competing with every other restaurant in town. Yes. Tourist options, DoorDash is yes. now your competing with DoorDash. Well, and, and now there are more and more restaurants opening up because everybody right. wants to open a restaurant. You know, there's so many people that, you know, when you think about all these chefs that work at these restaurants for other chefs, they move on. And always the goal is when they leave that restaurant, they want to open something of their own. So now you're yeah. competing with, somebody that worked with you, you know, five years ago, they're opening their own restaurants. So we're just seeing so many restaurants just pop up and it's huge competition. And that's why you have to be on your game all the time because it just takes one bad experience where people are like, I'm not going to go back there um, because I have other options and, you know, dining out. Now you want to have that stellar experience every single time. There's no room for bad, bad nights. If I lived in New Orleans, could I DoorDash a plate from you? Um, I don't think we do. Door we did. We did do DoorDash during the pandemic, but we deactivated okay. that so we could just focus on on in you know in in dining guests. Why? Because I mean, it's you know, I I think that our food is better received when people are actually sitting in the restaurant and, and enjoying it and getting, getting the full, the full experience. You know, when you open up a, a box, it's just not optimal. No, the part of why I love your, you're saying part of why I love your food is because I'm in your space. So I'm getting your aesthetics. I'm getting your timing, right? I'm getting the, the full, the lighting, the whole thing. Rather than I'm at I'm at home, I'm out of the experience, and I'm right. just you don't you don't want that. No, I, I I don't. I want people to get all those flavors at the right time. 
you know, and sometimes reheating is not the best, the best option. Yeah. Yeah. No, the timing, the timing makes a huge difference because you finish it and then I'm getting it 10, 12 minutes later, maybe 15 minutes later. That's that, that can't be optimal. Right. Not for something high, high. Do you think about, you ever stop and think about Top Chef changed my life, a reality show changed my life. (laughs) You know, it's funny. When I got the phone call, I told my mom, I said, hey, mom, you know, this show contacted me. They want me to, you know, be a contestant. And she's like, don't do it. She's like, I'm not going to watch it. It's going to be too stressful. And I said, okay. And then as time went on, it kept on calling me. And I said, you know, Mom, I, I think I'm going to do it. And she's like, why? And I'm like, because I think I can really put Caribbean food on the map. I can let people know about where I'm from, what I'm cooking, you know, not just being a chef, but really letting people know that I am from a tiny, tiny island and we make amazing food. And I wanted to know that. And when I did that show, it was very hard. It's the hardest probably the hardest thing I've ever done. Um, and, you know, when I had people that I worked with that did TV shows, they said, oh, you know, your life is going to change after the show airs. And I'm like, okay. And once the finale aired, um, you know, three, four months go by and no phone calls, no emails. So I said, well, maybe I was just a dud. And then I would say by the fifth or sixth month, everybody started calling you know, can you do this? Can you fly to Toronto to cook? Can you do this? And it just, it just took off. And I don't think people are prepared for the chaos that happens. And I was getting burnt out because I was still working my current job and traveling and doing all these things. And it just became not fun. And I told my husband, I said, I said, if we're going to figure out the next step for us, I need to take a break. I need to quit my job and just see how the the chips stack. And then we go from there. But I just could not balance the two of working a really busy job and then travel on top of it. And it just became a lot. But you have opportunities to do people were saying open a restaurant in Chicago, LA, New York, Atlanta. And I'm just like, this is this is too much. I this is a life changing experience. And I want to make sure that I'm doing the right thing for me. Thank you so much for a great interview, and thanks to you for listening. Torre Show gives you fuel to power your dreams because you can use your dreams like a rocket ship to blast you into a life you never imagined. You can make your dreams a reality. Maybe this show can help. You can find me on Twitter at Torre and on Instagram at Torre Show. Torre Show is written by me, Torre, and produced by Jennifer Brown. Our editor is Ryan Woodhall. Our booker is Claudia Jean, and we're distributed by DCP Entertainment. And we will be back next Wednesday with more amazing guests because the man can't shut us down. We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick... Let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered.